Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope once again. We're glad that you are joining us this evening, this Friday here as we are broadcasting here at A Reason for Hope. Uh, Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time, is an hour-long live broadcast. We're live with you on multiple platforms and it's all about your questions on the Bible. If you have questions on God's Word, the Bible, you can send those in through those platforms. And we have guests here who love the Lord and they love His Word and they love to answer your questions and share what the Bible has to say about your questions as they come on in. So it could be a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like explain, something you've come across in the Bible that's like, what does that mean? Uh, or maybe something you're going through on a, a personal level, you'd like to know what God says about it, you're trying to honor Him but not sure exactly how to do that. Maybe questions on even other worldviews and religions as they compare to Christianity, things going on in the world, um, what the Bible says about the end times, anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest and sincere question, and as long as you know, as I said, the Bible's the source of the answers on this show. We want to tell you what the Word says as accurately as we possibly can with God's help. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I'm your host today. I'll be on all those platforms with you watching and waiting for your questions to come on in and with us today as we're broadcasting from here in uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. We have Pastor Scott Richards. He's our senior pastor here at CCF. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Once again, it seems like... Another day in paradise. Day. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are, we are in a uh, an interesting uh, part of the uh, traditional calendar here in Tucson. Uh, it's like over 100 today. And in October, everybody sort of assumes that since it's officially fall in October, such things should not happen. Uh, I have learned to accept that just when I come to the moment where I believe that I will never feel cool again, then and only then yes. will the temperature go down. Yes. But that's usually about the third week of October. I'm yeah. like, enough already! That's very true. That's very true. And I forget, during the summer, I forget how cold it does get during the winter here, and then the opposite is true. I forget how hot it gets in the summer when we're in the winter. It does, you know, we do have, but, you know, we don't have extreme... Uh, cold compared to yeah. some other places. Yeah, but, but, but there's no shades of subtlety. When yeah. the temperature goes down, it's like the Lord just turns yeah, down the whatever. thermostat 15 yeah, degrees just, just one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It yes, was indeed. hot summer, now it's winter. That's right. <laughs> that's that's right. Or as we call it, habitable. Yeah. But, yes, <laughs> that's right. But I certainly like the cooler mornings and all those kind of things. Also with us, Sean Richards, Pastor Sean. How are you doing today? Waiting for that cold myself. Yeah, uh, I think we all are. I think we all are. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here again, both of you. We appreciate your faithfulness. I know the viewers do to this ministry and being available. Um, as I mentioned, this is a live broadcast. We're with you uh, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here at A Reason for Hope for your Bible questions. Uh, it's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. We're all on, on staff here and, and serve in various capacities here at CCF. So if you're in the, the Tucson area, you're more than welcome to come check us out if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. Uh, we're in uh, Prince and I-10, right on the west side of the freeway there, pretty convenient location. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. You can get more information there and reach out to us through that website as well. And we have that Watch Live tab that you can click on. That will take you out to our live page. Whenever we're live, we stream to that page, one of many places. So you'll see our video, you can sign in with a username, and then we have a chat function there where you can send your question. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and you'll see a, a schedule of upcoming events, so you won't have to miss anything. We stream 
Reason for Hope and also our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to join us that way and other events that we have, uh, we try to live stream these days pretty much everything that we do, even the the men's breakfast, which is strange. You obviously can't eat any bacon through the screen, but you can watch the teaching portion. Um, so lots going on right on that live page. You can go directly there, ccftucson.online.church. You can just type that right into your, your browser um, address bar, ccftucson.online.church or calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the link from there. We're on Facebook as well so far this week. So good. We had some problems with Facebook, but uh, every day this week it's been behaving for us. So that's good news. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook or facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. And that's another way you can send us your question through the uh, the, the comments, the, the chat attached to the video. I'll be right there with you. Don't be scared. I'm right there receiving your question. It's going to be okay. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship as well in your app store. We have an app for your mobile device if you'd like to download us on your on your cell phone or mobile device and watch us that way. And we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you go to your channel store, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can add us as a channel and uh, watch us on your big screen as well. We're on YouTube live as well as we speak. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel uh, on, on uh, YouTube. A Reason for Hope, look for that. And uh, we are live. You can send your question in again through the, the comments there. And uh, anytime we've been live on YouTube, it will archive there automatically. So if you go to that live tab, if you missed the show or want to recap on a question, uh, you can check it out right there. We also post like questions of the week and other content as well. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Once again, don't forget to like and subscribe. We'd appreciate that. It helps to, to uh, spread our ministry. And then the notification bell, you'll get a little prompt. Uh, when we're live as well. Um, Pastor Scott right here, who I introduced, is on Twitter. Scott R for H is his handle. Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. On Twitter, he posts all kinds of stuff. It's uh, quite a, a hubbub of uh, activity, I understand, on Twitter. He posts highlights from the show and questions, highlighted questions, uh, but also just commentary on things going on in the world. So much going on in, in the news and uh, like in the Middle East and things that relate to uh, Bible prophecy and end times and things of that nature. So it's uh, interesting to follow along with him. Also some funny things and all that kind of stuff. So Scott Arthur H on Twitter if you so desire. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live on Rumble, but we post content there. So if you're on that platform, it's kind of a relatively newer platform. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on the Rumble platform. And then our email address, if you'd like to shoot us an email, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there, email us your questions. If you're on the radio, Reach Radio or another radio affiliate, we are glad you're joining us uh, via the radio. Uh, do drive safely out there if you're on your drive time. And just keep in mind, we're not live with you. You're listening to basically yesterday's show, the last show that we did pre-recorded um, but keep that email address in mind, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll try and get to that question on our next show, and then I guess you'll hear it on the next day. Something like that, some kind of a quote, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to write it down, it's a whole scientific process. But uh, anyway, we're, we're, you're very welcome. However you found us, however you're joining us, we're glad you're there. Please do send your questions in, get them in early, and we'll try and parcel out the time for those. And once again, as long as it's a sincere question, and as long as you know the answer's coming from the Bible, then it's all fair game. Um, so thank you for being with us today. 
Well, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us? I would certainly love to pray I heard a rumor that you like talking to God. (laughs) Yeah, we are on speaking terms today. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That is good. Lord, thanks so much. That uh, What a miracle it is that when we pray, our words are heard in heaven. Not because uh, we're eloquent, not because we're spiritual, but because of the marvelous intercessory work of our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that uh, your son has bridged the gap uh, between you, the holy God, and us as fallen sinful human beings. Who are we that, uh, that you would even notice us or take notice of our lives? And yet you tell us that you're so intimately invested in us, even the hairs in our head are all known and numbered of you. So we thank you for that, and we thank you for the miracle that we have uh, of not just being able to express our hearts to you in prayer, but hear what you have to say to us through the channel you've created through your divinely inspired Holy Spirit anointed word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak words of encouragement, edification, comfort to us. Uh, We pray that your word would get through to our hearts and our heads and allow us, Lord, to be able to look at life a little bit more from your perspective than we ever have before. Thank you, Lord. You're far more anxious to have your word change our hearts and lives than we are in seeing it happen. And Lord, especially I pray for those who might be on the outside looking in at what a real relationship with you is all about, that this would be a day where they would come to understand that all they need to do is put their faith and their trust in what your son has done for them, dying in their place, rising from the dead, asking you to forgive their sins, come into their life, and they can be born again as well. We pray that many people all across the world would do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen to that indeed. Well, is there anything going on in the world you'd like Gosh, to Gosh, what isn't going on in the world? Uh, you know, just uh, some really interesting uh, things uh, coming up as far as prophetic significance. Uh, obviously, in Israel, we've been uh, telling you quite a bit about the upcoming uh, agreement that uh, really seems to be gathering momentum between Saudi Arabia and Israel. A fascinating article uh, in uh, the uh, Jerusalem uh, Post uh, said uh, and and described uh, what is going on in that set of circumstances in this way. He said, they said, the potential normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel under U.S. President Joe Biden's auspices is still the talk of the town for its massive regional and international consequences. Many say uh, inking such a potential normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia would be a historic breakthrough in world politics. This is their quote. It could have a seismic effect unlike anything the region has seen in years and be even bigger than the signing of the Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt more than four decades ago. As you know, the Camp David Accords allowed Egypt and Israel to have a formal peace treaty first Arab nation to enter into a formal peace treaty with Israel. Uh, Anwar Sadat, who was a part of signing those accords, paid for signing those accords with his life. He was assassinated by a Muslim extremist for doing just that. So, you know, again, uh, we see this going on in the Middle East. A third major cabinet member of the Netanyahu government has left for direct talks in Saudi Arabia. Uh, even today. And so the momentum definitely seems to be moving in the direction of Israel and the Saudis coming into an accord. But as uh, that introduction tells us here, uh, the massive regional and international consequences of such an accord are not being lost on the usual suspects we run into in the Middle East. Another article in the Jerusalem Post with this 
headline, Saudi Arabia has given up on Palestine with Israel peace, says the head of Islamic Jihad. Those who rush toward normalization with the Zionist project know that this is their acknowledgement that Palestine is not ours. Uh, that is them's fighting words in that neck of the world. Uh, again, uh, the head of Islamic Jihad denounced Arab attempts to normalize relationships uh, with Israel on Friday, not just Saudi, but anyone else who would join in the Abraham Accords. Uh, the militant group staged demonstrations in the Palestinian territories and neighboring states. Uh, about all of this, uh, Ziad al-Nakala, the head of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror group, said those who rush toward normalization with the Zionist project must know, and they do know, that this is their acknowledgement that Palestine is not ours and that Jerusalem with its mosque is not ours. Now, again, uh, could uh, ask you, Sean, for some comments on that from a Muslim point of view, but uh, them's fighting words as far as uh, the, uh, the idea of uh, any kind of Muslim street cred, if you will. Uh, to say that uh, Jerusalem and uh, the Temple Mount, especially itself, belongs to Israel uh, is something that uh, no uh, thoroughgoing Muslim would accept, right? Well, if they took their sources seriously, which is a step in And that's the enough. big question. Yeah, because yeah. the Saudi government's trying to do that less and less, fortunately. But when we're talking about the and there's no other way to put it, the anti-Semitism that's rooted at the foundations of the geopolitical religious system called Islam, we need to first understand that the only reason why it gains any traction in the hearts and minds of Arab culture in particular is because it leads to success, that God's favor is shown through their ability to successfully conquer and hold foreign lands. And when there were visions that were given to Muhammad, according to traditions attributed 200 years after his death, uh, that he would conquer not only as far as India, but even go as far into Byzantine Europe, he said all nations would be a part of the Ummah before the time of the end. So when we talk about the concern that Muslims have with any consolation, whether it's like we've mentioned before, formerly Andalusia, now Spain, Muslim territories that were right. conquered and then lost, Israel being, I guess, uh, consolidated after World War II as Ottoman territory and then was handed over to the Jewish people once again, then Islam has something to answer for because there's one of two directions people go. You can go the route of ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi who said, well, the reason we're not seeing success and we're losing our grip is because we're not being sincere enough. And so they founded or followed into traditional Islam once again and literally modeled their behavior point for point after the greatest generation, Muhammad, the generation after that, and the generation after that, who are all bloodthirsty war criminals. So if that's then the model set by ISIS, what's the other stat? Well, it's what we're seeing today as well, according to teachers of Islam, that there is an avalanche of apostasy that's taking place among the Muslim community, that it's gotten so 
intense and so out of control, because Muslim sources are accessible on the internet, the standard operating procedure of Muslim leaders just lying to their congregants and saying, oh, you like science? Uh, Muhammad was a uh, scientific genius and revealed scientific marvels that were, uh, you know, centuries ahead of its time. Oh, you're ahead of women's rights? Muhammad was the greatest feminist that was ever known. You like racial rights? Oh, well, Muhammad freed slaves. He founded the abolition movement. Complete nonsense, but they'll put these things forward. Why? Because all of the sources were exclusively in traditional Arabic, and no one could call them out on it, and those who could wouldn't bother because they get their head cut off through the majority. But now what do you have? You have people all over the world, myself included, regularly posting information that people don't want you to read about Islam and making the average person who is a morally decent person, but a part of the Muslim community going, I don't know about this. And you have, again, among these two types of people, those who would revert back to traditional Islam and those who would abandon it entirely, people are going, well, at best, I'll be under a death penalty if I live in a Muslim nation. At or at worst, I should say, at best, I'll be ostracized from my family and community like Nabil Qureshi was and have to pay that cost. Most people, unless they're exchanging it for something greater, like Jesus, for instance, are just going to say, I might be an atheist, I might be a Christian, I'm just going to keep it on the down low. I'm going to keep this quiet to myself. Right. And there's this scenario that's being talked about, albeit humorously, but also despairingly by uh, teachers in Pakistan, for instance, who are going, there could be entire mosques just filled with atheists, and they're just waiting for the per first person to admit it to step up, and then they'll right. find out that there's only one person left in the mosque to enforce Sharia law, while the rest of them are just going to go, I don't care about this anymore. So in that mindset, what the Islamic leaders and the Islamic political influencers are afraid of is that with Israel still standing, not just as a nation, but in the face of everything Islam has to throw at it, there are the radicals, there are the fundamentalists, there are the people who take their religion seriously and are going to say, well, we need to be more sincere. We need to be more radical. This is a judgment from Allah showing that we're not following the Ummah enough or following the deen enough, the Ummah is the community. There's others who are going, clearly Islam isn't delivering on what it promised us, and if Israel is able to stand against this incessant onslaught of everything that Islam has to offer, what does that say about its real strength? And they will instead leave it. That's the position, and if there is to be any progress made among the Muslim community, it can't be through the foundations of Islam because it's being found on a verifiable lie. Not just that Allah spoke to Muhammad, that's enough, but the claim that if you follow Islam, you will conquer territories and hold them in perpetuity, which isn't true. Right. And if they have to cope with that, it leaves them with two options, both of which are not what the normal person wants to commit to. Not everyone who calls themselves a Muslim wants to be a terrorist, but sometimes they're left with no choice because they have to take a serious account of their sins and whether they take their Islamic religion seriously or not. There are also people who want to leave Islam but have to count the cost of what that would uh, take away from them culturally, most significantly their families. Again, most people don't want to do that. So right now, Islam is kind of in the same position of the Medo-Persian Empire at the time of Alexander the Great. It boasts a lot of influence, it boasts a lot of territory, but it's very hollow, it's very vulnerable. And just the simple mention of errors in the Quranic manuscripts, the simple mention of Muhammad's moral defects, the rumor 
that the Quran has been desecrated or disrespected or even disregarded in some way has to lead to riots across India, Europe, and potentially the United States here soon, depending on the population, for what reason? Because this is the only tool in our, our toolbox. It's the only way that we can enforce or at least preserve this identity of control, fear, which is something that, of course, our God does not need to depend on in order to contain itself. We don't say Christianity is true because we hold the greatest superpower the world has ever known. The influence and prosperity of the United States isn't proof of Christianity, but Muslims will argue that because that's their playbook. And this is the point that's being made. What makes Christianity true? Is it what we do, what we have, or what God has done and what he's given us? This is the message that we need to share with Muslims and be prepared to do on their terms, because whether you think that they're passionate and beyond saving or not, there's a lot going on in the hearts and lives, and especially the minds of the Muslim community right now, and that is an open door for ministry. Even in spite of their political leaders and their calls to violence and isolationism, there, is, there are people there who need Jesus and are now more ready to receive it than any other time in history. Yeah, you know, and the, the fascinating thing about you know, what you've said about the Muslim mindset is that it directly uh, impacts the way politics go down in the Middle East. Uh, you know, we talked about how uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, jihad uh, in uh, Gaza, very upset about the idea of the Abraham Accords, but they're not the only ones. Uh, fascinatingly, we are also told that uh, there uh, was a uh, very strong reaction from Jordan's King Abdullah to the possibility of Israel and Saudi Arabia entering into a, an agreement, an accord, without uh, coming up with a two-state solution, without creating a Palestinian state. In fact, uh, so much so that uh, Jordan's King Abdullah, when he addressed the United Nations, uh, was saying that uh, there may be, uh, well, maybe even sinister motives on the mm -hmm. part of the Saudis, anti-Islamic motives, if you will, yeah. uh, that are causing them to move towards this linkage uh, with Israel. Uh, the Saudis uh, have said, uh, it just depends which spokesman you're looking to, that no, 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 uh, our point uh, with coming to a, an agreement with Israel is they would have to return to pre-1967 uh, war uh, borders, including giving uh, East Jerusalem back to the Palestinians as their capital. Some of them have said that. Others have said, nah, not really. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, you know, that's sort of water under the bridge. And uh, as far as uh, who oversees the, the Temple Mount and, and so on, uh, we, we really don't care about the Palestinians having a homeland or having a state. Well, someone like King Abdullah uh, looks at this and he realizes something. Literally, his life could be on the line here. Uh, there is a small sect of which King Abdullah is part that rules the Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, they are an offshoot of the Saudis, believe it or not, a uh, kind of the, uh, the struggle between the House of Saud and uh, what are called the Hashemites. Uh, the Hashemites lost this struggle, and so they got as their consolation prize, you get to run Jordan, uh, but we get Saudi Arabia and all the holy sites and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, if you've seen the 
the country of Jordan, some of the area around the Sea of Galilee, very beautiful, but the vast majority of it, boy, just uh, very uh, open, expansive desert, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just so uh, bleak that it makes, uh, say, uh, that uh, the stretch between Blythe and India look like Tahiti in comparison. Wow. But one of the things that keeps the uh, Jordanian uh, government alive, even though they're a minority uh, in terms of the general population of Jordan, the vast majority are people we would describe as Palestinians. Well, one of the things that keeps them alive is they control the Temple Mount. And that uh, handing over the Temple Mount uh, to the Jordanians by Moshe Dayan back in 1967, further ratified in 1992, allows uh, the uh, Hashemites, like uh, King, uh, King, uh, the, uh, the uh, King of Jordan, uh, to be able to have the, the power and the prestige to maintain their position. You know, in other words, if the vast majority of your country are of a different clan and that clan gets tired of having, say, all the politics and all the big business and the military dominated, by a minority group, you well, that's not all that uh, keen on your interest. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty soon, as we saw during the Arab Spring, and even in Egypt, um, governments sort of toppled along that line. Mm-hmm. The thing that provides King Abdullah and the Jordanians the uh, the most uh, bankable form of stability they have is the fact that they have the prestige of overseeing what is alleged to be the third holiest shrine in Islam. Well, we've already talked earlier this week about how the Saudis have a different view on all of that. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock uh, considered these great shrines. Even the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Saudis say, well, we really don't even think that it was there originally. We think it was about uh, 30 kilometers north of Mecca. And so the, and uh, the Quran agrees yeah, with them. Yeah. And so, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is this, if you're uh, King Abdullah in Jordan, you're trying to hold on to power with a minority of the population. Your uh, your trump card, the, the, the thing you always go to is, no, 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 uh, we control this area and it's the agreement we made with us and if you turn your back on that, then the Jews will control the Temple Mount. By the way, there was another uh, series of uh, dust up, dusts up uh, regarding uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, about 1,400 Jews that were allowed to go onto the Temple Mount, some of them uh, sneaking up little mini uh, palm branches, if you will, the mm-hmm. four kinds of palm and, and, uh, and uh, vegetation that you're supposed to wave during all of that. They would sneak them out and they would wave them around. They were immediately beaten up by Israeli cops who turned off their body cams, and so there's a big dust up over that, like yeah. saying, why can't we worship on our holy site? So you yeah. see how intense on both sides the need for this uh, for the Jordanians to stay in place really is, mm-hmm. because uh, you know, fascinating uh, discussion uh, that we were able to hear with a very high-ranking individual in uh, in Israeli politics uh, points out something really important geographically. There is only one nation that stands mm-hmm. between a direct route between Iran and Israel, and that's Jordan. If Jordan falls to, say, Iran's side of things, uh, that geographical buffer that they have there is gone. It's a very important part of Israel's defense uh, strategies. Mm. And so when King Abdullah starts saying, hey, 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 
uh, you know, you're not going to be able to do this sort of thing without uh, coming to this two-state solution. And the Saudis and Israel are like, yeah, well, we can do that, and then we can come back to that later. That's kind of where it is right now. What's going to happen? Is this going to go forward? Now, the fact that the third high-level cabinet member from Israel is now in Saudi Arabia and high-level talks with the Saudi government, which is an absolutely unprecedented thing. This would even be unthought of even 10 years ago. The fact that that's going on right now tells me that train is moving down the track. Yeah. Uh, but there is one major stumbling block to seeing this sort of thing come to pass. And it's not, uh, you know, again, uh, Islamic Jihad. Uh, it is not uh, the Palestinian Authority. It is not the King of Jordan. It is not the Saudis. It is not Israel. It's the United States. Mm. Fascinating uh, news brief on uh, Israel's Arut Shiva uh, news site. It's uh, Channel 7 in Israel. It says this, Israeli officials and even Saudi ones are reportedly frustrated with the American administration's insistence on giving the Palestinian issue so much weight in the talks to reach a three-way agreement between Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and Israel. Israel Hayom reported on Monday, citing sources that are informed in the details, that the Biden administration's exaggerated obsession with the issue is impeding the progress of normalizing ties and halting any breakthroughs. One of the sources stated that disagreements regarding the central issues on the agenda, including the U.S.-Saudi Defense Pact and the U.S. and the Saudi nuclear program, are not highly significant and can be overcome. On the other hand, the source says the American emphasis on the Palestinian issue is so excessive that it can be the thing that collapses the entire process. Saudi officials criticize the U.S. administration's insistence on the issue as well. Do you understand what this has just told us? If I'm negotiating a treaty with the Saudis, I would tend to think the issue of whether the Saudis can develop their own nuclear bomb would be a huge issue. In my mind, that'd be a biggie. Uh, if uh, the Saudis were to enter into a formal defense pact with the United States and by virtue of that with Israel, that to me would be a biggie. But these appear to be issues that can be worked out. What can't be worked out? The Palestinian issue. The idea of the Palestinians going to get their own state. You know, again, uh, there are those who will say the Palestinians already do have their own state. It is called Jordan. But and Egypt the, and the, Lebanon. But and the, the Hashemites in Jordan do not want to see it that way. Because, again, one of the things that was really interesting uh, about King Abdullah's remarks is that uh, the Jordanian government is really worried that if the Saudis come down and just say, well, no separate state for you, that a huge influx of immigration is going to take place from Israel into Jordan, which is going to further tip the scales and throw the Hashemites out as far as being able to govern and rule there, which is something Israel doesn't want to see happen, by the way. So uh, all of that is just to, to tell you that uh, as soon as you start moving down the path of trying to do something that would create peace in this region of the world, you're playing with a Rubik's Cube because you might solve one side of it, but the other side's all messed up now. And then you have to mess up the other side to get the other side yeah. straightened out. Um, you know, we are told in the book of Zechariah that uh, Israel and specifically Jerusalem would be a, a, a cup of reeling and a stone of stumbling to all nations that would be gathered around it. There's going to be an intractability to the idea of settling this issue, particularly the status of Jerusalem prophetically, especially in the last days, 
we're told there's going to be only one person that's going to be able to square the circle, if you will. And that person is the Antichrist. He's going to make a strong covenant with many. That's going to be so mind-blowing that it is even going to resolve the Temple Mount issue, at least temporarily, mm -hmm. by allowing the Jews to be able to rebuild their temple on its historic site. Whether that ties into the Saudis getting involved as curators over the Temple Mount area and saying, well, you know, uh, the problem used to be you can't build the temple and the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, standing at the same place, which is why the Al-Aqsa Mosque was built in the place that it was, correct? When they would take over an area, they would build their mosques so that the previous religious shrines of the people they conquered could never be rebuilt in its historic site. Look at the Hagia Sophia, look at India, yeah. look at everything yeah. that Islam has conquered. They specifically target religious sites to show their superiority over the non-Muslims. So Saudi comes in, they're overseeing the site. They go, oh, well, we'll keep the Dome of the Rock for you for sure. But this Al-Aqsa Mosque, it's 30 kilometers north of Mecca. What are we doing with this thing anyway? So there you go. Maybe that's Maybe. a step in that direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, again, the, the Netanyahu government has uh, indicated that they are getting a bit frustrated with the United States and their uh, intransigence on these issues. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see which way it's going, because on the one side of the coin, uh, Saudi is definitely sticking its neck out as far as uh, the ire of the Iranians, as we've told you earlier this week. Uh, they uh, have uh, these high-level public interchanges with Israeli governmental figures, which would have just been considered blasphemous. Uh, again, uh, when uh, the, the Saudis are doing all of this, it seems to me that uh, they don't do these things in a haphazard manner. So I think we're going to see uh, a seismic change, perhaps, yeah. coming wow. in, in the Middle East. We wow. just really need to be praying uh, that uh, there would be wisdom. We need to pray for our leaders in the United States. Uh, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yeah, so. it comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, we've got a good handful of questions. Come on in. Let's see what we can get to today. A question from Mike. What does it mean in Revelation to be blotted out of the book of life? Is this someone losing their salvation? Thank you. Thanks, Mike, for your question. Yeah, it's taken that way by some people. Uh, when it comes to not just reading Revelation, but interpreting anything. There's two rules that anyone would follow reading anything. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. If it has been explained before, it won't be. Just real quick. If it hasn't been explained before, it won't be. If it has been explained, or it, it will be. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. So if we understand this term blotting out, has no explanation. It's just stated as a fact of, uh, I guess, ongoing, I guess, in Revelation 3, a comfort, but in Revelation 22, a concern, and in Revelation 20, a description of those who are separated from God forever. That's concerning. So what's the significance of this? Well, the best place to start is where the term started, right. the law of first mention. Right. Now, that's in the book of Exodus, is it not? Yeah, uh, Exodus chapter uh, 32 uh, this is the aftermath of the golden calf incident. So uh, in the context of sin. Right, and God judging sin. Uh, in verse 30, we are told, Now it came to pass in the next day that Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the, Lord's, to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of the book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place for which I have spoken of you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day I will visit punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So this idea of blotting someone out of the book uh, the, the would imply, right, that your name is in the book to begin with. And Moses is doing this interceding for not just the well-being of Israel, the existence of Israel going forward. Right. They're about to be exterminated, and they knew that this would result from those actions, rightly so. Right. When they were going to be the object of God's wrath in this case, when did Moses bring up this term blotting out? He said, take me from your book, blot right. me out. And again, it's not like erase, not uh, remove. It's to literally make illegible, to cross out, not to exempt from or not writing in the first place, which is what you're getting at. So if that's the first context of this term blotting out is from, in the context of intercession, by the way, which is important, what does God do? He says, no, I'm going to blot every name out but yours. No, it's still defaulted to grace. Right. But what then, and this is where we don't want to keep begging the question, what then does it mean to have your name blotted out from the book of life? Well, we see the result of it in Revelation chapter 20, anyone whose name wasn't written in the book of life or wasn't written, wasn't found in the book of life, that's important, was cast into the lake of fire. So as an object of what? God's wrath eternally, but just in principle. In a sense, Jesus was blotted out when he went on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. And, And I'm being careful to specify the biblical term, not to read passages into it, but that's the point. So in the setting of having your name blotted out, it would be synonymous with being an object of God's wrath, staying in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, but never getting to 4. Now, does that mean then, if we're all in verse 3 at one point or another, where do we get to verse 4? It's the grace of God. The same thing demonstrated when that term first came up, that we have an intercessor. Not Moses, but who? God himself. Right. Interestingly enough, the angel, God the Son, who is going to visit punishment on Israel, not to destroy them, but to hold them accountable for it. And that was with what? A choice. They would either, and you can read this in the next chapter, stay on the side of those who started the events around the golden calf. We'll get more than PG if you want. Feel free to ask. But then what? People were invited, come over back to Moses. An opportunity of restoration came first. Right. And then those who knowingly violated and committed capital crimes were executed. But here's the point. In the context of intercession, in the context of restoration, in the context of God not blotting anybody's name out of the book of life, it was first brought up. So would it be appropriate to read into that passage a threat or hope? And that's the point. When Jesus brings that up, not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Revelation, it's always with that reminder back to Exodus when that term first came up, is it not? Yeah, and you know, once again, I think we have to take a look at that through the lens of what God says in general about the fact 
of our salvation. Uh, you know, again, uh, when you run into a passage that seems obscure, always defer to the clear. And Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 and following says that, you know, again, God is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. From this, we can make a pretty good case that uh, every person's name is written in God's book of life until they die without taking God up on his offer of salvation. At that point, their name is blotted out. Then we see at the great white throne judgment described in the book of Revelation chapter 20 that anyone whose name was not found written in the book was cast into the lake of fire. Uh, you know, again, that's the deciding issue. Did you use this life for the opportunity that God gives to you to be able to say yes to a saving relationship with God. If you did not, you said your whole life long, nevertheless, God, not thy will, saving me be done, but my will, I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, Frank Sinatra is gonna be you know, my worship leader. Um, God will say, well, based upon your, your decision to live life separately from me, you can have eternity separate from me. You know, be gone from my presence. Yeah, it's not a loss of salvation. It's the description of refusing it. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, the, the, and as far as the loss of salvation is concerned, boy, you start going down that path, there's no end to it. Um, people will say, well, um, you know, it's committing a you know, really gross kind of sin. Okay, um, well, we see a really gross kind of sin being committed. Uh, for instance, in the, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a man in Corinth uh, was uh, living in sin with his own mom, uh, something the Gentiles didn't even do, never treated as a non-believer, turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, we see uh, the Apostle Paul saying, no, you've got to restore this guy uh, so you don't add sorrow to his sorrow. So, you know, if that isn't, uh, a sin great enough to lose your salvation, you know, incredible moral depravity. Oh, okay, uh, some will say, well, what about consciously rejecting Christ, denying the Lord? Well, Simon Peter did that, not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus said to him, um, you know, Simon, Simon Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I pray that your faith would not fail. Um, okay, it didn't seem like his faith failed to me, but not to God. God's faithfulness didn't fail. And he goes, and when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. Yeah. So, you know, once again, Simon Peter's never treated as someone who lost it and then got it back again. Right. He's treated as uh, someone that was a little too confident in his own declarations, uh, wrote checks with his lips his life couldn't cash, yeah. but uh, never treated as a non-believer. So, uh, you know, when someone says, uh, you know, how can you lose your salvation then, you know, I would just ask them, okay, where do you cross that line? And how do you uh, reconcile that with these clear examples of, that, of people seemingly crossing that line in Scripture? Having said that, uh, it kind of comes down to the old once saved, always saved versus can you lose it yep. dilemma. Okay, uh, those who teach eternal security and those who teach you can lose your salvation would agree on one thing. They look at a person that, say, had a profession of faith in Christ who totally walks away from him, you know, maybe living in, 
in moral rebellion against God mm -hmm. and his standards. Maybe, you know, like a Charles Templeton writing books like Farewell to God, where he espouses atheism. Um, you know, they look at a guy like that and they would agree on one thing. Well, um, maybe this person had a profession of faith in Christ, but if they were a real Christian, they wouldn't be, say, wading deep into the sewage of moral sin or writing uh, books to writing Christianity. Uh, both of them would say, that guy needs Jesus. Yeah. They're just arguing about how he got there. Yeah. Did he have it and lose it, or did he never really have it? The once saved, always saved side says that if you behave that way, well, it's because you really weren't sincere in the first place, yeah. which seems to take away any kind of assurance of salvation from the position, because if you don't persevere, you don't keep watching your spiritual P's and Q's, uh, well, maybe you never had it in the first place. Right. So... You know, the bottom line is this. Uh, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot disown himself. My confidence in getting to heaven is not based upon anything that I've ever done for God, ever will do for God, or, or am doing for God right now. My confidence in getting there is because Jesus said, the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Mm -hmm. He will not enter into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I consider Jesus to be an expert on these affairs, so I'll defer to his judgment. <laughs> That's a good call. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> great. Well, Mike, thank you uh, for that question. Hope that helps you out with that. Thank you for being part of the show today. A question from Mac D. A person asked me if all the religions don't believe in Jesus, does that mean they are going to hell? Um, they believe in a different God, right? If it ain't Jesus. This is such a great question. Mac D, I've had so many conversations with people that have said like, oh, all gods, all roads lead to the same heaven. We just call him by a different name, but it's just the same God. A lot of people believe that. Sounds like, sounds very nice at face value, but. It's actually extremely disrespectful to every view, including the Christian one. <laughs> yes, when you um, get into it, yeah. So, yeah, let's get into it. First of all, someone makes the claim that uh, I don't believe in Jesus. Does that mean I'm going to hell? Well. Who is Jesus and what is hell? If they use terms to try to emotionally manipulate you, then I'd say that's not a productive conversation. If we both know what we're talking about, then the person answered their own <coughs> question. And I've referenced it a lot this week, but I'll make sure I actually give citation this time. In the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 12, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection made this claim about him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the claim of Christianity is that of all the names under heaven, meaning on this earth, of all the people out there that give an answer to our separation from God problem, the fact that there is a perfect standard, whether we define it differently or not is irrelevant, we understand there is a problem and a solution to it is either handed to us by people we trust or people who have been proven trustworthy. And note, I make a distinction. If they bring up specifics and say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist and I think that that works for me. Well, it works for you in the sense of this life or the next because you asked about hell. Well, I'm a Muslim, and so I'm going to take my chances and, you know, crossing the razor-thin bridge over, uh, over uh, Jannah and trying to get to paradise in a balancing act of my good deeds and my bad deeds, my baraka and my bidda. Well, okay, but how do you know if you've kept 
Sharia enough? How do you know if you've modeled yourself after Muhammad enough? Because Muhammad himself is stated in the Hadith literature as saying, I don't even know what my Lord is going to do with me. And he was the walking Quran, according to Islam. Mm. So how do you have any assurance? And you say, oh, I'll die in jihad. And I go, okay, well, now we're going to call 911. But that's the point. If someone comes to you and makes specific claims, if even if you haven't done enough homework and you know you don't have every religion memorized or whatever take them at face value and say okay how does that deal with your sin problem how does that keep you from hell which we also need to define because every religion views that differently muslims and uh, pagans usually make it into this macabre torture session uh Buddhists and Hindus treat it as continual existence in this life, that reincarnation, in fact, is punishment for not living your life in harmony and balance with either the Eightfold Path or the virtues of your chosen God. Only, and, and even uh, non-Messianic Judaism says that uh, our righteousness before God, our willingness to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, will ultimately be what wins the day. But that contradicts even their own scriptures. Christianity you can hear things from people you trust, even people who claim to be Christian, and say, well, if you put faith to your faith, right? You have faith in your faith. You put feet to your faith and say that, God, I believe that my sins are forgiven. That's not on his terms. You can go to a Latter-day Saints church or the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. You can follow Islam and say, oh, I love Jesus. He's an honored prophet. But that's not the Jesus of history, and that can be verified because he makes claims that are fundamentally in conflict with the second option, proving himself trustworthy. The name under heaven that came from Muhammad came from the same man who died in the same way he said he would if he was a false prophet. He died saying, quote, I feel as if my order is being severed, and we can read in the Quran that if I'm saying a false prophecy, God's going to sever my aorta. Not subtle. Sounds like you got that one right. <laughs> yeah. So, no, he's a true, a true prophet now because he verified he's a false prophet. Figure that one out. We can look at Joseph Smith's life and note that he was a huckster, a charlatan, and didn't get a thing right as far as the false prophecies that he committed to. The Jehovah's Witnesses, even worse so. We look at Buddhists and ask, okay, if this life is all that you have, or this life is just one punishment among many, that's a long gamble. You can do the, uh, uh, what was the, Pascal's wager routine on them. Yeah. But when the apostles came to people and said, there is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. It was the man who died and rose from the dead in a moment of history. And if his claims should be taken seriously, it starts with the deeds he used to back them up. Hmm. That's why we trust him. So if your concern is, and this is what's bringing back the question, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're believing in someone who didn't match up to the reasons he gave to be trusted. So your complaint is literally an answer to your own question. Are you saying that if I trust in someone who's not trustworthy, I made a mistake? Are you saying that if I separate myself from God in will and in heart with the only one who put his credentials on the table, that I'll actually be held accountable for that? The answer is yes. But now you seem a lot more foolish because now we actually know what we're talking about. Now we're not using emotionally buzzy words. So if someone tries to pull that game, try to dismiss you, do the Deepak Chopra thing and say, are you saying that if I don't believe in your Jesus, I go to hell? Okay, I believe, and this is how Greg Kokel 
we've, we've mentioned earlier this week, yeah. took care of that situation when he was on Lee Strobel's program debating him. He says, no, I believe that reality is what you bump into when you don't take it seriously. And this is the point. If Jesus has proven his credentials, you have to do something with him. Accept him, reject him, but don't ignore him, because that puts you in the second category anyway. If, upon the other hand, you have reasons to trust someone other than Jesus, tell me, because we got a long list, and if you can match that, I'd be impressed. But that's the reason why we trust Jesus over others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything to add to that? Well, the other thing is, uh, and this always comes up, well, you Christians are so narrow, you say your way is the only way. Well, actually, when you evaluate the truth claims of any other religion, they say the same thing. Hmm. Even Baha'ism, which uh, I guess prides itself on being the uh, all road, river, religious rivers lead to the same uh, great ocean, which is God, uh, would say that uh, Christians are excluded from that because we say our way is the only way. So they say that their way of tolerance is really the only way. Yeah. So uh, the, the bottom line, though, is this. Anybody can make these kind of claims, but who are you going to trust? Well, there's only one individual um, that founded a religion that uh, is different from us. The rest of us have our feet squarely planted on planet Earth looking up to heaven, and we speculate. We base our ideas on what it means to be saved on speculation. However, the Bible tells us that uh, when Jesus came here, he is God, very God in human flesh. He walked among us, uh, taught us how to know God. Uh, he taught us what our problem was, why we don't know God, and provided the solution so that we could know and have a living relationship with God again right. through trusting in what he did. And he verified it by rising from the dead in a moment of history. That's why I would tend to believe Jesus' exclusive claims. And let's face it, when life and death are on the line, um, things get really narrow. Have you ever noticed that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you and I were given, like, say, a diagnosis of a fatal disease, talking about, oh, man, look at this, you know, you're, you're going to die from this disease. Well, our first question is, well, what are we going to do about it? Yep. Well, if the doctor said, well, you know, some people say that, you know, you, we could put a cast on your arm. Other people say we could take out your appendix. Uh, we could give you some uh, liposuction. Uh, <laughs> you know, do, do whatever's right and best in your own mind because far be it from me to put my ideas of truth on you. Well, if doctor said that to you, you'd be running out of the uh, examining room probably without even uh, changing out of your unfashionable uh, examination gown. Why? Because when life and death are on the line, truth matters. Truth is very precise. Life and death truth is very narrow. And the Bible presents uh, our spiritual life in just that same way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Great. Well, D, thank you. Great question. Thank you for that. I hope that helps you out there. A question from uh, Bick. Why didn't God create people with the mind of people in heaven and in the new heaven and earth initially? Uh, they still have free will, but there will be no sin there. Thoughts? Thanks. So the question is, why aren't we already perfect? Why didn't God just create us in heaven? Yeah, basically, why why did God give us free will, knowing that we were going to do terrible things with it? <laughs> well, it's the system of Romans 5. Through one man, Adam, the man who was created with the mind of someone in heaven, but knowingly rebelled against God, through one man, all sinned. Why? Because we adopted his sin nature. But if on the other hand we note through one man righteousness came to all men, 
the second Adam, if you will, Jesus Christ, then we've put together a system where not only can we not break it, but that the Holy Spirit's going to be able to see through to the end. Because when we're talking about someone who's in the mind of heaven now, we're not talking about a system that's going to repeat. There won't be a second Adam in that sense, another creation that's going to end up fallen and sinful like some bad Mormon fan fiction. When we're talking about the system that will be put in place in heaven as of our now glorified bodies, we will have utilized our free will to do what? To receive the same spirit that not only rose Jesus from the dead, but that literally made him the kind of person that did all things to please the Father, that would not rebel again, that knew him personally, that not only chose to be there, but wants to be there, something that, like the members of the Trinity, will eternally enjoy fellowship with, will have chosen, adopted that into our nature too. Now, like being created in the image and likeness of God comes with a heavy responsibility, it also came with a heavy cost when we sinned. We chose to fracture our own nature. But in heaven, what did we choose? We chose to adopt a new nature. Now, in this world, a fallen nature functions in what? Falling and falling and falling again. In heaven, adopting the perfect nature will be exercised in what? Not just not falling but standing, resting, abiding, loving, doing the things that he does. So in the same way that we just can't help but sin in this life, the next life is going to be someone who by nature can't sin. That's why our free will be utilized in that way, not just because we have a choice, we made a choice, and now we're living in light of the nature, just like sin here, righteousness there. Yeah, great, makes sense. Anything right to add to that? We've got no, I think the, that's great. Well, we're out of time for today. Thank you so much for your questions. Sorry if we didn't get to them. Um, it's the weekend now for us, so we'll be back here on Monday again. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. You're sure you're certainly welcome, and uh, we're really excited uh, about uh, where we're going to be in the Book of Acts uh, on Sunday. We're going to be talking about how grace is not just a prayer we pray over a meal. Grace is not just a fallback <laughs> position in our lives, but when we understand God's grace, it's going to change every other relationship we have, and we're going to see a very interesting relational breakdown that illustrates that. So come on out. Oh, very good. Yeah, come on out if you're in the Tucson area, or join us on these same channels. We stream live as well, so if you're not in the Tucson area, you can join us there. Thank you for being part of Reason for Hope. See you Monday. God bless you guys. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.